All right, if you can turn to Esther chapter 2. It is um, not quite as long as chapter 1, I think. I almost shortened it and almost put the end of it into next week because really the end of the chapter um, is kind of a hinge between chapter 2 and 3. And so it really could belong with either of them. So maybe you'll hear it again next week. <laughs> so anyway, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young, women who, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with King Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the time came for each young woman to go to King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman, uh, sorry, the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her, from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shayashagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, 
the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabah, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this uh, holy history recorded here was written down for our instruction. These people indeed are examples to us on whom the ends of the ages has come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure and idolatry. They also remind us that you are faithful. Texts like these are one way that you guard us from such temptations. So I ask that you would now instruct us that we may enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm not exactly sure what came over me. It seemed smart at the time, but it turned out to be not so smart. What came over me is I decided, since we're studying the book of Esther, why don't I watch some of the movies that are based on the book of Esther? And so I went to my Netflix, and I found that of the two movies I knew of, only one was available on Netflix. And so I said, hey, honey, why don't we watch this tonight? She probably wishes we hadn't, because I began a stream of complaints about this movie. <laughs> it started off just saying, you know, that the, uh, the original source material was the Bible, but they took some uh, dramatic license as uh, necessary for the advancement of the story. And uh, as we were watching it, I'm saying they took utter uh, dramatic license for this story because they kept departing from the biblical story. In many ways. I'm beginning to wonder what Bible they read as they did this, but uh, I didn't watch the whole thing. I gave up after 30 minutes because it was just too daunting for me to sit there, and I wanted to have mercy upon my wife who would be sitting next to me through this entire thing. Um, 
But it did get me thinking. And it did sort of rearrange how I was looking at this text. So your notes will look a little different <laughs> than, what, than what I have here this morning. So a few things have been moved around a little bit. Because I see that there are two people who are looking for a love to call their own. Xerxes is the obvious one. But if we remember that idea from Sunday school that is actually from the text, uh, in light of the text that I did our uh, prayer from, 1 Corinthians 10, that idea of, of historical typology where the real events are used to point us to something greater. And last week we talked about how Xerxes is sort of the anti-type of Jesus, meaning he's the opposite in many ways of Jesus himself. And so this text points us not, shows us not only the way that Xerxes went to find a love to call his own, but also reminds us that Jesus does the same thing, but in a very different way. And so we'll have those two eyes as we look at this, but we'll also see the invisible hand of God's providence as he works in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. So those are kind of the two ideas that run through this whole text, indeed, through this whole book of Scripture. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus grants favor to undeserving people as His bride. That's the typology for you right there. Let's start with this, that God's providence includes includes crazy and cruel kings, even though we wish it didn't. It does indeed include crazy and cruel kings, as we talked about last week. We see here that Xerxes' anger has subsided. I would imagine that his drunkenness had also subsided, although the text does not mention that. But Xerxes now finds himself on the horns of a dilemma. Because he cared about Vashti, he missed Vashti, it says, but he can't get Vashti back because the edicts of the Persian kings were non-reversible. He couldn't say, can we have a do-over? She was banished. They were divorced. And he was lonely. And so he seeks a solution to the problem of his loneliness. He needs a new queen, not just a one-night stand. What he does in part, or on the advice of his counsel, because again, as we saw last week, Xerxes does nothing on his own. He's always looking for advice from other people, and usually it's bad advice. And so the advice that comes to him is to ignore the standard protocol of finding a wife from one of the ruling families or from one of your allies. We see this took place often, if you're, if you're at all interested in history, um, if you look at the lineage of the European kings, there was Marion going back and forth as they had all of these political alliances with one another, and those alliances were usually sealed in marriage. And so he doesn't do that here. Rather, the, um, the advisor appeals to the fleshly desires of Xerxes. He's going to have a rather expansive, and I would imagine expensive, 
search for this woman. Because it is going to cover the entire realm. All 127 provinces are going to be included. He's not going to look just nearby. He's going to look far and wide. And what he's going to do in that search is he's going to hire officials in each province who will be in charge of identifying the beautiful young virgins that are going to be carted off to Susa. So you have employees that need to be hired and compensated, as well as all the transportation costs to bring all those women over to Susa. One of the movies we saw recently as well was called Meet the Patels. This was almost the reverse of that. This was a young Indian man, Indian American man, who was wanting to get married, and um, he flew all over the country to meet with women you know, uh, the blind date, so to speak, based on their data profile that he received from his parents as they sought to help him get married. Well, this is the reverse of that. He's, the king is not going to them. They're all coming to him in great numbers. So, this is what we see. But this points us, if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, that Jesus' search was even more expansive than the search of Xerxes. His was limited to the 120 provinces over which he ruled. Now, it was large, Pakistan to Ethiopia, that's a whole lot of space, that's a whole lot of women. But Jesus goes to every tribe, tongue, nation, and language in search of his bride. But instead of using the tax coffers of the people, Jesus does this by costing him his own life in the process upon the cross. So he doesn't ask the state to carry the burden, the taxpayers to carry the burden. He himself carries the burden for his search of a bride. Now, as I mentioned, they focus on Xerxes' lust. There's this repetition that happens within this text. Beautiful young virgins, beautiful young virgins. Did you get the point? They are to be brought to his harem from all over the empire. Okay? And what he's looking for is the one who pleases him. And again, the emphasis is going to be on pleases him. Now, as you think about this for a moment, I'm sure there were some very poor women who might be tempted by the allure of luxury in the king's harem. The idea of going to a place like Susa might be exciting. The idea of uh, finally not having to scrounge for food might be exciting. But I imagine that this was probably a very small minority because of all that it meant you would have to leave behind. Most of the women were taken against their will. It's interesting that one Jewish midrash says that Esther hid for four years, and finally they found her and dragged her. And that's, there's no basis in the text for any of that. So there's two ways of looking at how this was done. One would be the paid employee, the one who's commissioned to find the women, walking around town, going throughout the province, and then when he notices a beautiful young virgin calling her, and um, not calling her on the phone, so to speak, but saying, you come with me. What I think actually happened is more like the Hunger Games. A day is appointed. 
And all of the young ladies who were not married were to attend. So, okay, Melissa, Katie, Brittany, remember this is Persia, Jenna, okay, work our way all the way back. All of you would have been required on that day to appear in that place, and you would then be inspected by the commissioner. Okay, so instead of there being one name being pulled out, he could pull as many as he thought might please the king. But it was similar to the Hunger Games in that you didn't want to be chosen. And if you were, there was great weeping and gnashing of teeth as you were taken from your family and placed upon the train, so to speak, and sent off to Susa against your will. Now think about this. Parents, you would never see your daughter again. Or at least there was a high probability that you would never see your daughter again. Because those who tried and failed, okay, they were placed in the second harem as concubines. They would never come home again. They would spend the rest of their days there in the harem, waiting for him to call, maybe. But most of their days would just be spent in the company of the eunuchs and the other women who had been sent there. We see something similar to this in Second Samuel 20 with the David's defiled concubines where they are just holed up in a place and they're treated as widows until the day they die. They weren't released. Because once you had been taken by the king, you were to be touched by no other man. And so their life essentially was over. Doesn't sound very appealing now, does it? And so what we find here is that Xerxes is hoarding the young, marriageable women. And is not just affecting them, but it's also robbing the young men of his empire of potential wives, all to please his own fleshly desire. And so we see as well that sometimes more than we'd like to admit, governments can often place unreasonable hardships upon their people. And those are the moments when God's people go, where are you? Help us. Because God's people weren't exempt from this. But we see the providence of God at work in all of this, and we're reminded of what Joseph told his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so we see that Joseph's brothers had evil intentions in selling him into slavery down into Egypt, while God had good intentions in him being sold to slavery down in Egypt. It's a similar thing here. Xerxes has wicked intentions in line, but God has a good purpose in line, the saving of his people. But his people didn't know that as this was taking place. 
Just as Joseph didn't know that he had been sent ahead of his brothers to save them, he thought he was cursed. And so we don't always anticipate the threats to the, to the godly community until it's too late. But we must remember that God has already been at work in a way to deliver His people. And so we see that Xerxes, if we were to, to uh, look at 2 Timothy 3, we would see that Xerxes loves himself, he loves pleasure, he loves money, and that drives his search. But we see that Jesus instead loves God and his neighbor. And it, and it determines how he carries out his search for love to call his own. Secondly, I want us to note that that just as God's providence includes crazy and cruel kings, culture clashes force hard choices for God's people. Because now the, the author of Esther introduces the rub. As if it wasn't bad enough. It's all about, been thus far about Persia. We, hasn't, we haven't even seen a mention of the Jews yet, or a Jewish person, but suddenly he mentions, or she mentions, there was a Jew in Susa. There are two communities, two kingdoms, that are coming into conflict. And let us not think that this is just something for that bygone day, but we must recognize that Paul tells the Philippians, for instance, that our citizenship is in heaven. And so uh, one of the important things for Philippi was that that was a colony for Rome, and it was a place where you could get Roman citizenship. And Paul is saying to them, while you may have Roman citizenship, the one that really matters is your heavenly citizenship. And so just as we, most of us in this room anyway, I can't speak for everybody because I don't know, you know, I know some of you have more than dual citizenship, okay, because you know, pieces like Canada... You know, your citizens there too. But you're American citizens, but you also have a heavenly citizenship. And the reality is that at certain times, those two citizenships will come into conflict with each other because the values are not identical. And you may have it easier than if you lived in China, for instance. But it's still there. And it was there for Mordecai. It was there for Esther. He is described here. I'm going to go back to it. I lost it. Ah, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who, uh, whom the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. If you didn't get the idea, there's a lot of carrying away there. He wants to get the idea of exile, exile, exile. This story happens within the context of the exile, but we're not sure who was exiled. 
Normally we would think that it is Mordecai who was exiled, but if it was Mordecai, then we're talking about him being about 120 years old. Probably not likely, okay? So then we go, okay, the, the last person, Kish. Was Kish the one who was exiled? And we would look at that and go, no, because he's setting us up, the author is setting us up for the conflict between Saul, son of Kish, and Haman, the Agite, somehow related to King Agag, whom we talked about in Sunday school this morning. This long battle between Israel and Amalek is going to be resolved in the book of Esther. So he's foreshadowing this. Most likely it's Jair, his father, I would imagine. But he's pointing out the important people in the line, saying, this is a cousin of Saul. He's, you know, his line goes back to Kish, Saul's father, but it also includes Shemai, who was the one who cursed David because of his allegiance to Saul after his death. And so this is a Benjaminite, but he's nobility because we see that he was, that Jair was brought into exile at the same time Daniel was. In 597. Okay? This, of course, would be 480, 480. The zero kind of thing. So it's many years later. But the exile marks this man. We don't know his Jewish name. His name that is given here, Mordecai, is a Babylonian name. It's tied to the god Marduk. Marduka is how it would go. And it's interesting that there is in the annals of the kings at this time a person that goes by that name who is an accountant. We're not sure if it was this Marduka, but it's quite possible that it was. But it also marks where he lives because he lives in Susa. He lives in not just the city, but he lives in the citadel, which means that he works for the administration in the citadel, and therefore it shapes his job. And so when we read this and we see that Mordecai is hanging out by the gate, it's not just because Mordecai has nothing better to do, but he works there and he's able to stop by between when he, you know, on his commute to the office, he's able to stop by and check in and see what's going on with Esther. Okay? He belongs there because he works there. And so the exile has, has shaped most of his existence to this point in time. But he's also connected to his Jewish roots. He is a good Jew in that he takes care of orphans, and in this case, the orphan is his cousin. And in this case, we have a Hebrew name, Hadessa, Myrtle, but she is called Esther, another Babylonian name, which means star or Ishtar. That's right, folks, not just a bad movie starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, but, a, but the, one of the goddesses of the Babylonians. So they're both named after gods of Babylon. We don't know 
if they chose those names to hide, kind of to fit in or not, or whether, like Daniel, those names were thrust upon them. Okay, probably thrust upon them. But we introduce, the author introduces a little more tension when he says, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger is what we have to see. This is a, a foreshadowing of what is going on. She is at risk to be snapped up by the king. She's in danger. Not only is she in danger, but it's a foreshadowing of the fact that Israel itself is going to be in danger. Because she represents Israel. As we'll see a little more in a little bit. She's summoned. She appears. She's chosen. Not that she wanted to be. And this creates conflict. Because when she goes into the king's harem, she cannot eat kosher. When she goes into the harem, she cannot celebrate the Sabbath. When she goes into the harem, eventually her name will come up and she is expected to fornicate with the king. Remember, they're not married. This is an audition to get married. And if she succeeds in that, she will be married to a Gentile king. She was not supposed to be married to a Gentile, period. And in fact, at the same time, we have uh, you know the book of Ezra. Back in the promised land in Jerusalem, they were dealing with the problem of all of the Jews who had married the people of the land without the people of the land converting to their faith. That's what it was about. It was about the fact that they would bring in false gods to the marriage and provide temptation to worship idols. But she was forbidden for this. And so this young woman is placed, because of the actions of this arrogant, selfish king to where her values are in conflict with the values of the kingdom of Persia. She's told by Mordecai and she obeys that she is to hide her identity. We're not told why she's told to hide her identity. But it's possible because Mordecai is in and and he hears things going around in the court that perhaps he perceives there already is some sort of animosity against the Jews and wants to protect her. But she goes along to get along and therefore is guilty of compromise. I mean, she could have said no. It would have meant perhaps death or imprisonment, but she could have said no and chose not to. And I'm reminded of of one of the great controversies that arose during um, the time of Augustine, uh, which he spoke about and helped correct, was uh, what's called the Donatist controversy, and that there was a time of persecution, and there were groups of people that um, backed away from the church And then when the persecution was over, they wanted to come back. And some people said no. And some people said yes. 
And Augustine eventually uh, stepped in and wrote about this and said, yes, bring them back. Because we know that we are made of but dust, and we all sin. And so let's, let's bring them back. Now, some of the Jewish commentators tried to avoid the controversy here of her compromise. They took a couple different routes. One of them was that she wasn't adopted by Mordecai, but actually they were married, and so she essentially was taken against her will and raped. There's another interesting one that has her being hidden by God and essentially a spiritual body double being sent to uh, fool King Xerxes. Okay? That's how scandalous this idea is that they come, they, that some people were tempted to go to such lengths to try and get rid of the hint of scandal. But she made very different choices than, say, Joseph did. Joseph could have gone along and not ended up in prison, okay, when he was invited by Potiphar's wife to spend some time alone. Daniel asked whether or not he had to do eat the food. He asked whether he could eat kosher. And so, you know, Daniel made a different choice than Esther did. And what I find sometimes is that we often are cruel to others who make different choices in very difficult circumstances. The self-righteous Pharisee that exists within us rises to the surface far too often. And we do not extend grace to those who made very difficult choices in very difficult circumstances. And so we can judge them. Much as how many people judged the uh, Kentucky clerk not too long ago who ended up in jail because she didn't want to abide by the law of the land. But what we see here is that Esther, because she represents God's people in her person, she represents his bride, that that she is tainted, yet he loves her still. God's people are tainted by compromise. And he still loves them and delivers them. You see, God's mysterious ways include not just putting Esther in this position, but also working through our failures and our compromise to produce good. We cling to Romans 8. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... And that's not the good things, but it's the bad things, the difficult things, and sometimes those difficult things include our compromise. That God is at work even in that because He is such an amazing God. We see, therefore, that our status before God, our justification, rests completely upon Christ's righteousness and not our own. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul has this great list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so do not let the idea of your past sins, the remembrance of your past sins, cripple you in ministry, but you too can be used by Him. Because you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. And that matters more than the fact that you had failed. And so Christ sets His love upon an undeserving people that He works to deliver from evil. Thirdly, God's people find favor to further God's purpose. You see, Esther, if we're we're honest, is one of hundreds, maybe even thousands of women that have been rounded up and placed into Haggai's custody. But we see right off the bat that she pleased him and won his favor. Now, we're not told how she pleased him and how she won her favor, but we are reminded of Joseph and Daniel. It seemed every time you turned around, God was with them and God gave them favor in the eyes of somebody and they kept getting higher and higher on the pecking order. Even in prison, Joseph rose to the top because God was with him. And God is with Esther in all of this. And so God has a plan for Esther, even if she doesn't know when this plan exists or even trust that it exists, she keeps finding favor, and it starts with Haggai, and we see that her part of this is that her 12-month spa treatment preparation was easier because now she is given seven attendants, and she has the best living space in the harem. She, gets, she keeps getting privileged and advantaged above everyone else. It's like Haggai wants her to win. Okay? For some reason. But we see that this preparation probably includes the preparation of what it means to be a concubine. And that's not just good conversation. And so, this is preparing her, as we've said before, for sin. And it's based on outward appearance only, it would seem. But we see that Christ's beauty treatment in Ephesians 5 is really for the purifying of us from sin. We see that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so just as Xerxes wants a beautiful woman before him, Jesus wants a beautiful church, but it's not external, it's internal. He wants a pure church before him. And we see as well from Revelation 19 that he clothes her, but he clothes her in bright fine linen that's pure, which John lets us know is the righteous deeds of the saints. So he purifies for himself, as it says in Titus, a people zealous for good works. That is the beauty program of Jesus, not spa treatment, however nice it might be to get spa treatment. Wouldn't know. I've never been in one of those mud baths. So, here we go. When her night comes, what's interesting is that we are told that this is in the seventh year of his reign. It's winter. 
Okay, because of the month that they're given, it's winter. So it's, this is four years from when Vashti was banished. Somewhere in there is when, when Xerxes decided, of course, that he wanted to go and uh, meet the Spartans at Thermopylae, which was not a very pleasant experience for him, although he defeated them, and eventually his, inva- his planned invasion of Greece would go awry. And so in there is his foray into Asia, sorry, uh, into Europe. So we're not sure exactly when all of this process started. It could have started when he got back, because we know that he took solace in his concubines when he got back, um, and he did that in Susa. Okay. But Josephus notes that prior to Esther, 400 women had been summoned to the king. Now, there was one commentator who tried to make it sound like the, the whole four years, one night, a person, but that's the, it avoids the reality that there was a 12-month preparation process. Okay, so at the most, three years of women being carted before the king. But I'll go with Josephus on this. 400 is still a huge number. So on the night in which she is summoned to the king, she relies on Haggai's suggestions in order to please the king. This probably has to do with what jewelry does he like? What kind of dresses and colors of things does he like? What perfume does he enjoy? What toys or technique might be involved? What things does he like to talk about? Because I'm sure there was some conversation. She finds favor before the king. She somehow manages to please the king to such an extent that he then stops the search and it's and crowns her king and has the holiday. But she's not the only one who finds favor. What we see at the very end of this chapter is that Mordecai also finds favor because Mordecai in his duties discovers a plot to kill the king. In fact, one of the two people that's mentioned is one of the seven eunuchs that were sent to find Vashti and bring her to the king. So maybe he was upset about that. Maybe this guy liked Vashti and was angry. We don't know. But he is in a plot to kill the king. Mordecai hears about it. He gets the information to Esther, who gets the information to the king, who then acts upon it. And these men are killed for their treason. But part of what's interesting is that Mordecai is mentioned in, as it says, the Chronicles... Recorded, but not rewarded. That's important. Usually they were rewarded right away, but there is an oversight. But let us think about this for a moment, this idea of God's invisible hand. In other words, for all of this to take place, Mordecai and Esther have to be in their positions. Mordecai has to have access to the administration in order to hear the word of the assassination attempt. Okay, God has already placed him there. God has also placed Esther in a position where now 
she can be heard and have access to the king with this report that she receives from Mordecai. They both have to be there. Because if you're Mordecai, you're not exactly sure whom you can trust in the administration right now. But you know you can trust Esther. And if this doesn't happen, then all the rest unravels. And so God has already placed these two people in these positions, and God has already granted both of them favor with the king. Without them knowing why. Without them trying. Really, why? So we see that both Xerxes and Jesus are looking for a bride. Both look over the extent of their realms. Xerxes' search is driven by his fleshly desires, and his search destroys homes and families and requires sin. It's all about him. But Jesus' search, a much greater search, a much better search, is driven by his steadfast love. He rebuilds lives that have been ruined by sin. He produces godliness. And so his glory is ultimately found in the good of his bride not at the expense of his bride, like Xerxes. And so here's the rub. We're sort of in both storylines. We're under earthly kings, but we're also part of the bride of Christ. We have that dual citizenship. We are often forced to serve an ungodly government But within our heavenly citizenship, we receive grace, we receive favor, despite our many sins. And it really gets, I think, gets back to which storyline dominates your thinking. What's the story that you're living by? Are you living by the story of the government, which is, we like you as long as you play by our rules. We like you as long as you can do something good for us. Or are you living by the storyline of Jesus, which is, I know you failed, and I love you. Which storyline we live under matters because it affects how we live. Whether we live in fear or in confidence whether we live in misery or joy. Think about that. What's the storyline that dominates my thinking about my existence, my experience? And what does that produce? Because too often we allow the wrong storyline to shape our identity. It is the storyline of God's redemption in Jesus Christ that is intended to shape our identity and therefore shape how we live in this world. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are like Mordecai and like Esther and that we live in two places, so to speak. We feel the tug and the pull as we seek to serve two masters. Even when we realize intellectually that we can't serve two masters. 
And Father, the, uh, the earthly storyline is writ deep into our hearts because of our fallen Adam. It is just a part of who we are to seek approval from other people. To seek approval based on our perceived goodness or beauty or attractiveness or smarts or whatever it is we got, we try to get favor from that. So, Father, we ask that you would be uh, at work renewing our minds so that we become increasingly shaped by the story of Jesus and what he has done for us and dying for our sins and being raised to new life and raising us to new life. That indeed our identity would be wrapped up in Him and our heavenly citizenship and it would show by how we live, especially in the most difficult times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.